Good morning, good evening, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Matthew Grant here and welcome back if you are a regular listener and if this is your first time, well, I'm delighted you have found us. Well, we're going to be talking about property in a minute, but first of all, news from Norway in the last couple of weeks that nine out of 10 people having accidents at nighttime on e-scooters were drunk. Well, another one for our list of uninsured and uninsurable, I think. But back to today's guest, Heman Shah, who, having successfully tackled the problem of modeling earthquake and hurricanes, launched Archipelago to help insurers and their clients figure out what the world's commercial properties are actually made of, where they are, and who do they belong to. Not as easy as many people might think. Well, we are delighted of Archipelago as one of over 170 companies we are working with now at Instec from both insurance and technology, large and small. And like many of the companies we know and many of our guests, Archipelago has a significant presence in the US as well as the UK and around the world. So if you're working for an insurer and want to know more about the companies with the solutions to your problems, or if you are one of the companies solving those technology and analytics problems, then please let us know hello at instec.co or drop me a note, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn. Now, finally, we know many of you are listening quite a lot, by the way, but we don't know who you are or what you think unless you tell us. Well, we enjoy talking to the many of the fascinating leaders and founders around the world, but it makes it even better when you tell us what you like or what you'd like to see more of. Matthew Grant on LinkedIn should do it. Now, over to heaven for today's slightly extended version. Well, Herman, really looking forward to having our second discussion. We'll talk a bit more about our previous one in a moment. But for those that haven't come across Archipelago yet, just a few words about what you're doing. I'm sure you'll add a bit more to this. Uh, you were founded back in 2018. You're working with large global corporations to identify and collect key information about their properties. That's then shared with insurers and brokers. Uh, and I believe you've got over 170 people. And according to our friends at PitchBook, You've raised $57 million. You're co-founder and CEO. And of course, you're also co-founder and CEO of Catastrophe Modeling Company, RMS, where we worked together for 20 years. So uh, good morning. Nice to be talking again. Good morning, Matthew. It's great to uh, reconnect with you. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, you've got to catch up or exceed, I think, actually, your number of downloads from last time. So you made it to our 1,000 fans award. You've actually, I've been looking at the data, you've got 1,303 Downloads. We actually had twenty in the last month, which just shows that this sort of uh, podcast is the gifts that keep on giving. And you also had, also had Andy Siggers on episode uh, one hundred and sixty-two when he was talking live on stage. So, yeah, anybody that wants to catch up on you again after this one hundred and forty-five, but uh, it's great to have you back. And we're going to be talking about what's changed in the last year. When we last chatted, Matthew, uh, we were exclusively focused on platforming SOV data. Uh, exposure data about the property, the detailed attributes, the COPE information, the values, the primary and secondary modifiers, uh, all evidence linked um, from primary source documents. Um, what we've now um, expanded the platform is to the second key data type, which is not just the independent variables of the property, the roof systems, sprinkler systems, values, construction, but what has happened to those buildings uh, in terms of incidents and claims. And so we now are onboarding loss history data, matching it uniquely uh, and immutably to the property exposure information, which is powering uh, an additional set of insight about the exposure and risk uh, through the lens of not only the exposure data, but the claims data associated with those properties. That's really powerful. I, I want to come back and talk about that. Before we do, 
just because you threw out two acronyms there, SOV, Statement of Values, and COPE. Uh, I'm going to get halfway through that. I'm going to I'm going to forget what they are. So construction, occupancy. You've got to help me with the other two. Protection and exposure. <laughs> oh yeah, team effort. We got there in the end. Uh, so yeah, I mean that that one of the problems, of course. You can, you can yeah. share that the next cocktail party you're at now. It'll be a big hit. <laughs> well, if you start we start talking about climate, we're going to get into five letter acronyms. So watch out. You just need to be uh, on board for those. Um, but of course, one of the problems you're kind of solving there or or, or helping people with is often underwriting information and claims information live in two completely different worlds, don't they? And actually, it's quite difficult to reconcile claims information. So so it sounds like your clients are now willing to share those with insurers and brokers. I'm sure there's some uh, constraints on how they do that. But how is that going down with the, uh, with the insurers? Well, the data is... Uh, shared um, loss runs um, is the is the term of art uh, for the the uh, claims information, and that's a core part of every submission, uh, which is the historic loss experience on the insured's portfolio, um, um, often specifically at each property level. Now, the challenge um, is like the statement of values, the exposure data that also lives in a spreadsheet, um, and so typically. Well, underwriters will receive um, uh, an email uh, from their broker um, with a request to quote. There'll be a number of spreadsheets and PDFs that describe the exposure data. Uh, but then there's also spreadsheet or spreadsheets that describe the loss experience on the portfolio. And so what we do on Archipelago is connect this data uh, uniquely at the property level so you can analyze and trend uh, not only what the aggregate loss experience has been, but how the current portfolio and its history relates to the historical claims and uh, compare the two to each other, including the reconciliation on what historic claims are still associated with properties that are still in the portfolio. Because often these portfolios change in the historic claims experience may be less or more relevant to the current portfolio than it was to the past. And those are difficult uh, it's not rocket science because the information exists. It's just all disconnected and living in different spreadsheets um, coded differently. And it makes it hard to compare, trend, and analyze. And we make that easier. So our customers um, are already sharing their loss experiences with their brokers and their markets uh, in order to get the quotes. Now they can integrate how they share on Archipelago the exposure data and the claims data all in one place, all connected, all trended, and all analyzable, uh, not only by them, but by their underwriters as well. And, and knowing you, I'm sure you're not extending the life of the technology that just shares spreadsheets between different parties. If, what technology have you got that is uh, either that information consistent or is replacing spreadsheets? It's about the data, and it's about standardizing the data. It's about enriching the data. It's about evidence linking the data. Uh, it's about making multiple years the data all accessible and comparable. Um, and it's the underlying technology is immutable, so we don't overwrite information. Everything is, is uh, maintained and connected. So you can see the life cycle and time histories of all these properties. And it's based on a, a very powerful sharing and permissioning architecture that allows this data not only be uh, uh, consumed by the risk managers and their organizations internally, 
but you can invite in their broker partners who can then invite in the underwriters to, uh, to, uh, to essentially, you know, virtual data rooms uh, to consume the information. And so there's a, uh, it's more than just uh, the spreadsheets. It's about how the information is represented, how it's validated, um, how it can be analyzed, and how it can be shared across the ecosystem um, of all the various counterparties who need access to this information to collaborate and to underwrite and price the risks. And the, not very exciting, but the bit that always engages people is what about the thing you touched on in there, but the kind of consistency of the format and how the data is exchanged. So, so one of the big challenges here seems to be figuring out who is ultimately going to drive that consistency. But I assume as part of what you're doing is actually creating a more consistent standards for how the data is being exchanged and absorbed? Yeah, the, 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 the current uh, process, um, which we often refer to as the pain chain, has a lot of pain points associated with it. But it's, it is remarkable that there are some real basic pain points uh, that really are persist, uh, persistent and, per, and, and persist throughout this whole process. And you flagged one of them, you know, irrespective of how complete the information or irrespective of how accurate the information is, or how irrespective of how well connected the time histories of the information are uh, on unique IDs over time, there's a consistency problem. Every single spreadsheet that an underwriter receives is formatted in a different way. Every spreadsheet, even if it's consistent format, often has different coding standards. Sometimes the information is reported in one model format versus another model format. Sometimes it's a free text description, as in this building has a glass curtain wall. Like they'll write a sentence into the field. And these inconsistencies are not only make it difficult uh, for the underwriters and their teams to discern what is the actual uh, characteristics of the property. Um, it's very difficult for them and time consuming. Um, and often they can get it wrong. It's like a game of telephone where at each hop and transformation, somebody might make a different interpretation of the construction of the building, the roof system of the building, the fire protection systems of the building. And these inconsistencies are grit in the entire system that stops, blocks cognitive analytical processing on the data in a consistent fashion. Yes. So the consistency of, 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 of the, the inconsistencies are a key pain point and one of the many um, benefits that uh, that we deliver is a consistent standardized coding that can support transformations to multiple insurer models and uh, analytic tools. Yeah, it's a topic we we all hope would have been solved by now. So it sounds like you're doing your bit to improve it. Hopefully, we'll no longer be having that conversation in a few years' time. Although, I don't know if you saw this, we did a survey of like 170 companies we're working with of what they felt the main topics of interest were, both from insurers and technology companies. And top three on the list was the ability to extract data from PDFs. So, I mean, it's, it's still, you know, it's, no, we're not quite where InsurTech thought it would be seven years ago trying to figure out how to get data from PDFs. You mentioned PDFs. One of uh, the core insights uh, that we've gained by working with these large owners, these corporations who have buy considerable amounts of commercial property insurance um, is that there are very compelling sources of truth that describe the facts of the property, but often they are locked up in documents, PDFs, Word documents, schematics, photographs. So a lot of our tech can extract 
uh, data out of these quote, unstructured data sources, you can define a set of uh, machine learning to uh, process those documents, to extract the pertinent information, and then link the document to the data to create a sense of provenance and evidence link, a lineage to where the data came from, which builds confidence that the data is actually accurate. It's kind of like having a virtual inspection of the property. How often do someone need to be in the loop on that? Because I mean, one of the themes that I've seen coming quite strongly in the last 12 months is a recognition that AI, artificial intelligence, can go so far. But there's this new term coming in called intelligent augmentation, which is where the, I mean, I often describe it as the AI needs to know when it doesn't understand mm -hmm. or, or flag it. So it just, and and I, it seems like there's going to be a role of humans in that loop for a long time. But I don't know if you can put a figure on what the percentage is of when somebody has to look at it versus automating it. But what's the, I mean, and, and also direction of travel, I guess, because you, as you, the, your own analytics get smarter and hopefully the data gets slightly better at source, what, what, what should we sort of think of as what can be automated versus what needs someone to, to look at it? You've put your finger on an important, very important uh, awareness in the AI community that for uh, sophisticated, particularly business-to-business -business AI use cases, the best practice is increasingly machine-first, human-in-the-loop. You mentioned some of the, uh, the metrics on our fundraising so far. A lot of that investment is to fund uh, the AI work to define the machine learning to perform these extractions, which, of course, human experts have to curate, train the machines. They don't, you know, it's not magic. You have to curate the, uh, the transformations. There's a constant investment in automating more and more of the process but you need to continue to have humans in the loop to identify and flag and resolve the corner cases. So a lot of the tech process is not only automating the extractions, it's systematizing when you need to alert a human to either intervene, check, verify um, the transformations that are taking place because they, these are, this is critical information and you know, machines are not perfect. Um, they're only as good as the data sets you have to train them and the humans that are able to curate them. Now, you, you start to see enough data, you can automate more and more. So, for example, one of the key artifacts that our machines are very good at automating is the processing of property conditions assessment reports. We've seen lots of P, you know, PCAs, as they're referred to. Every time a property owner acquires a, a commercial asset, um, they, can, they commission a property conditions assessment report as part of their due diligence process. Each one is different, but there are similar patterns. And we've seen thousands and thousands and thousands of them now, actually tens of thousands. And so the machines are getting pretty good. Now, there are some more novel data sets where we, we, we go straight to human to review because uh, we're still curating. So there's a range of practice, but the mindset and the methodologies are machine first, train your machines and then keep human in the loop to resolve the edge cases. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the big difference of what you're doing is because you're going right upstream and working with the, the originator of the data. The data is there as opposed to an insurance company where it's just not there. So they've got to then go and figure out how to fill the gaps. Who's driving this now? Are you finding you're getting a push from the risk managers who recognizing the benefits of this and are actually pushing it out? Or is it more of a pull from the insurers and the brokers who are seeing the benefits of doing this? So our initial insight was through, was informed um, by the experience of the underwriters. Because that's, you know, as, as you and I, we share that background where we did a lot of work with insurance companies 
helping deploy models, helping them ask for data to power those models, and their constant frustration with the challenges of getting quality data consistently formatted that they can rely on to power all those downstream modeling, whether it's for CAT or attritional or, or, or all other peril rating engines. Um, that was the motivation. Our insight was let's go upstream to the owner and embed a system of truth in their own data uh, as the owner developer manager of these assets um, and initiate the flywheel from essentially the outside in from the customer, the end buyer to the broker, to the underwriter. So the, the, uh, the driver of the flywheel for us has been by starting this process with the large owners, some of the largest buyers of commercial property in the world are already on Archipelago. Uh, so we have several trillion of a unique property, mature value of, of commercial property on the platform. But what's interesting that's been happening in the last year is you start to see the feedback loops uh, uh, turning, i.e. I, I was just talking to uh, a senior insurance executive who is commenting that more and more of their submissions are coming in on Archipelago. And now they're talking to some of their brokers to encourage them to bring more submissions like this because it makes it easier for the underwriters to do their job. And they're, they're now encouraging the brokers. We, we, every one of our customers, top tier owner of property and buyer of commercial property, has a top tier broker. Those brokers are now saying, hey, we have other customers that are not your customer archipelago that might benefit from this process. So now we have several brokers are actively onboarding their customers onto Archipelago or introducing us directly to their customers to form a direct relationship. And at first it was you know, the hard work of one by one, getting the large owners to adopt, onboarding their data, supporting their submission. And now we're starting to get underwriters and brokers um, providing feedback loops that are starting to pull more data sets in, which is really encouraging because you can see a system can tip pretty quickly. You don't need to have 51% adoption before a system tips from one state to another. And uh, we're starting to see the first real concrete evidence of these network effects pulling in additional data sets and customers onto the platform. Yeah. Well, we've both seen that before somewhere else. The property owner, so they have a choice, don't they? I mean, particularly now, and we could talk a bit about captives in a minute, but they themselves are getting more sophisticated, getting more power about how and where they buy their insurance versus retaining it internally. So presumably that's been part of the driver behind this, is it? So they get more insights and then they go and have just, you know, discussions with their insurers about what their options are or their brokers about what their options are for how they buy their coverage. Yeah, with, with, with all things, uh, you need to tap into a larger flow or forces that are at work uh, in order to change business practices, particularly in, in deep, complex B2B verticals like property and insurance. Um, and so in, in many ways, we are tapping into a growing uh, desire from the large property owners and property uh, insurance purchasers to take control of their own view of risk. We hear that phrase a lot or variations on that phrase where they want to shift from my role is to buy insurance to how do I think about my role being maybe I'll sell some risk, right? Rather than my risk is so somebody tells me what my risk is in the underwriting process to I know what my risk is. 
and I will decide whether to transfer it or not if I think the market is advantageous um, and offering good terms to do so. So some of this manifests in captives. Some of this manifests in retentions. Some of this is, you know, making virtue, uh, you know, uh, necessity is the, uh, the mother of invention, where with rates increasing, having to retain more risk, powering more motivation to understand what it is. But we do see this shift, particularly amongst the large owners, where they have uh, increasing motivation to own their own view of risk, manage their own risk, yes, transfer risk, but have the data and the insight they need to make these decisions proactively. And this is also being accelerated by other forces, such as the increasing drumbeat of ESG and R initiatives, where there's other stakeholders besides insurance that are increasingly interested in how these large property owners understand, manage, and mitigate their physical climate risks. It all is conflating into a similar set of motivations, which is we as the corporation who actually owns these assets or operates critical business activities out of these assets, we need to understand our own view of risk. We need to manage our risk. And yes, we transfer risk, but the, the, the operative function isn't the purchase of insurance, it's the management of the risk. And so this starts with the very large corporations. Some of them have balance sheets that rival the size of the whole U.S. insurance industry. Um, but it, we're seeing it more and more, uh, this drumbeat of, uh, of, of, of buyers starting to shift their objectives and their mindset to be more proactive uh, consumer of insurance as part of a larger context of managing their own view of risk. Yeah, I had a really interesting discussion with Richard Kutcher, who runs the Global Captive podcast, which is episode 198. And I certainly learned a lot from that about captives. And it was definitely echoes what he was saying. And also the size of some of these, these companies as well. They're very well capitalized and can absorb a lot of that loss potential on their own, own balance sheets. Um, but also, actually, the other thing he mentioned was there's starting to be a sort of recognition from these companies about the sophistication of the analytics they can use to measure the risk. I mean, it's almost by definition, the people you're working with are already understanding what you're offering in terms of helping them on the analytics and data size. But, uh, but it, you know, just in terms of perspective of what you've seen over the years, because you, you've known the kind of corporate world for more than just the last four years since you were in Archipelago. Uh, are, you, are you sort of seeing a, a dramatic shift now in how these companies are thinking about the use of data analytics for their own risk mitigation and risk transfer? Well, there's, there's definitely uh, a kind of secular shift happening. And in many ways, if you look at you know, the first wave of analytic adoption that you and I helped catalyze on the modeling side, you know, in many ways, it started with the reinsurers, right? And then it moved upstream to the insurers. And now we're seeing it move upstream to the large buyers who historically have been on the outside of this process, uh, increasingly saying, I need to be inside this process in no small part because I have a large captive. I'm my own insurance company. I have to have the same capability to understand exposure, risk, and make rational decisions as my insurers do. Um, and so, yes, we are seeing a, 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 remark, a remarkable shift. Um, and I do think it's, approach, it's already approached a tipping point. Uh, part of it is catalyzed by some of the uh, the hard market of the last several years, but part of it is being catalyzed by some of the governance uh, 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 kind of uh, forces on these companies. Um, and some of it is being catalyzed by it's now possible for them to do so. The tools, the data sets, Archipelago makes its contribution, others are as well, to making it more practical uh, for these uh, these large corporations 
to not just rely on their insurance partners to inform them what their risk is um, it, as part of the placement and underwriting process, but actually have a proactive view and make decisions themselves about how they want to retain, structure, mitigate, and yes, transfer risk, whether to captive, the traditional shared and layered programs, uh, alternative forms of risk transfer like catastrophe bonds, um, more corporations are, you know, there were several uh, corporate cat bonds um, issued last year. All of them were associated with archipelago customers, perhaps a coincidence, perhaps not. Uh, but yes, they're, they're exploring multiple proactive strategies uh, and that has changed in the last few years. And seeing that change is part of what motivated me to start Archipelago, that the time is now ripe uh, to, to make this shift. And Emma, what about some like, real-life case studies or, or clients you can talk about that, just to bring this to life? So one company that, uh, that I can discuss publicly um, that is going through this journey is uh, Prologis. I, uh, I think we chatted briefly about Prologis last year, but since we've last spoken, uh, Prologis um, issued an indemnity cat bond um, as a corporate buyer. And one of the key enablers of them to do so was they how their data sorted. Uh, you know, we know one of the key issues with corporates um, and cat bonds is that, yes, uh, parametric deals are available. Um, and have a lot of merit, but then they have to retain the basis risk. And when you're an individual corporation versus a reinsurer issuing cat bond, basis risk becomes more and more of a concern. Uh, and so indemnity deals are more relatively, are, are, quite, are, are quite attractive and, and desirable because it, it removes basis risk. But to do an indemnity cat bond on a corporation, you need to have great data. Right? You, you can't be ambiguous on the locations of your properties. You can't be ambiguous whether it's masonry non-combustible, tilt-up concrete, or dual steel frame, you know, brace system, those need to be precisely coded, and the investors need to be confident uh, that there is no uncertainty or minimal uncertainty in the underlying data sets uh, that power these indemnity bonds. And so that's an example um, that Prologis uh, was able to execute, uh, you know, a sizable indemnity deal uh, in no small part because they had verified, enriched. Um, their data with evidence links, and we you know, helped them uh, do so. And that gave them an extra uh, tool in their risk transfer toolkit that they previously didn't have. And just for those who aren't aware of what an indemnity deal is, that's basically a transaction which is mostly conventional insurance when the payout is based on the, the loss at your point. That's, you can understand that, model it when you've got good data. Uh, don't want to be too much a dampener, though, for all our friends now that are developing parametric solutions, there are still plenty of opportunities for parametric. And in fact, parametric solutions are also helped by, by better data. But it is an interesting, we look at the percentages of deals done on the catastrophe bonds or the insurance-linked securities. I think about 15%, we reckon, were actually parametric and still the bulk of them are in indemnity. Hello, Ali Smedley from the research team here. ESG and climate change are topics that are becoming more important than ever. We wanted to explore what we could do at Instec to limit our own environmental impact. We have calculated the carbon emissions caused by the lighting, heating, air conditioning and general running of our event venues. By working with Ecology, we have supported a solar electricity project in Egypt, protection of the Amazon rainforest in Peru and 100 trees being planted, all to offset our event emissions. We have done this for all of our events we have held this year, up until October. We look forward to continuing to support this initiative.
I want to come back to this point you made last time. One of the questions I had for you was how rich is the data or the data sources coming out? So are people using sensors and things? And your answer was, well, in some cases, or maybe many cases at that point, many risk managers didn't even know what properties they're insuring, let alone getting down to the level of detail about what those buildings are doing or sensors. Is, is that, are you seeing that trend improving? It sounds like that's what you're saying, but just to sort of validate that so that now the risk, your clients or the people that are going to become your clients are actually getting a better understanding of what's in their portfolio. And then to your point is now the work is actually to get to more resolution around the data itself. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when we chatted last, um, I, it is it is very uh, appealing and exciting to talk about novel new sources of data like sensors. And we do so with, with our customers and this tsunami of digital uh, living data uh, you know that that has no analog in a spreadsheet is 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 a very compelling and important topic. Uh, how to enable that? How to connect that data? How to process and interpret that data? And I was also cautioning that a lot of it is more blocking and tackling. Uh, that there are there's there's a lot of call it lower hanging fruit need for improvement around uh, before we 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 dive into the topic of sensors around understanding. Is the portfolio up to date? Because it, it, it may seem, you know, it, you know, for, for, it's easy to throw stones, but it is a complicated prop problem. Like some of these large property owners, they're buying and selling property all the time. You know, the, an individual unit of building may not be changing every day, but every day their portfolio is changing. It's not just because ad ads and deletes, acquisitions and divestitures, roofs are being replaced. Loss control engineering reports are being performed and recommendations are being implemented. So... At a portfolio level, these things are changing all the time. When we started, we weren't sure, does this data even exist? We're seeing these patterns where, yes, property exists along a life cycle. It's built, it's maintained, it's repaired, it's mitigated, it's insured, it's inspected. At each point on the life cycle, similar life cycle, different sources of data get created, have nothing to do with the insurance proposition, there you get created because there's other business needs for that data. And you can tap into that flow and design machines to extract that data to create a high quality data set and do that in scale. And when we first got started, it would take us months to onboard a large company's portfolio. You know, now we can do it in weeks and we'll get it down to days. Um, you know, and so this process is working, which is giving me confidence that we can now begin to talk about what happens next. Right, so the data improving the process around the data um, is uh, is important, but that sets the stage for what comes next. Okay, well, let's not go there yet. Otherwise, you've got to end the podcast. I've got some more questions. That was um, <laughs> that was your final question. What happens next? Um, but to your point there, I mean, of course, yeah, insurance isn't existing in isolation. There's prop tech, and there's I'm sure there's loads of other techs. So there's adjacencies where data is being created anyway. So uh, it sounds like the answer is certainly getting better in terms of that risk manager not knowing where his or her property is, but it, we're not there yet. And I think the whole topic of digital twins is fascinating. But the point is, if the data, the data you really need to make a decision is not there, then all the interesting variable data is, is actually not very useful because you still need the fundamental data to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So that's a good direction of travel. But my warning to anybody in that area is, don't get too carried away with the vision of digital twins if, if you're missing some of the stuff that's going to determine the decisions the underwriter is going to make. And you mentioned um, climate in there as well. 
And he actually you said E S G and R. Is that right? So I know. Well, I think everyone now knows the E S and G, um, environmental societal governance. What's the R you added in at the end? I'm starting to hear more of the R, read more of the R, and discuss more of the R as we're discussing here. Uh, increasingly, you know, ESG, which is you know well you know w- w- widely discussed, is being augmented by ESG and R as in resiliency. Uh, so it's about uh, resiliency, uh, physical climate risk um, is a, a, is is an important dimension of now increasingly important dimension of ESG and ESG and R imperatives. Uh, it's it's certainly there's a fair amount of scrutiny on institutional owners of commercial real estate um, are being asked as part of the ESG increasingly, um, how do you assess, benchmark your resiliency of your property um, and, and, and report that to your investors, your limited partners, your stakeholders? Um, it's now increasingly you know, of interest to the operating companies as well, and not just the people in the commercial property business, but large corporations who happen to have you know, property as a key part of their operating system, if you will, for the business uh, uh, functional functionality of their business. Resiliency is coming up more and more as a key imperative, not just in the context of insurance. Yes, you want a highly resilient property as in it's not vulnerable. It, you know, it's, it's, it, it will stand damn. It's also resiliency as in the resiliency of the property as it speaks to the resiliency of the business. And uh, stakeholders are increasingly looking for reporting and uh, insight from these corporations on how do you think about resiliency, how do you measure resiliency, how do you improve resiliency, and what are you doing to do so? Um, and so this is adjacent to insurance, but it reinforces this same imperative, which is to answer these questions. It's not only about answering these questions so you can produce a high-quality statement of values to get your insurance renewed. It's increasingly answering these questions so you can manage the resiliency of your business uh, to uh, natural hazard and climate risk. And in my view, uh, I suspect you'll share this, is that insurance has done probably the best of anybody to be able to understand risk in the long term. I mean, this is partly going back to the probabilistic nature of, of catastrophe modeling. Um, but that, I think, will continue to be the, the state with looking at the whole ESG and the climate. And I, I, I'm not going to start talking about climate condition models and sort of forecasting a future state. We could probably do a special podcast just on that because I'm sure you're looking very carefully what's happening on that. But just back on that point about the information coming out, because from an insurance perspective, in simple terms, there's like three areas, at least three areas, they, they're getting asked to report on ESG. So one is when they're on, on the underwriting basis, and particularly here in the UK, the Bank of England is, is actually explicitly asking people to model future scenarios. The second one is from investors looking at it from the portfolio. And then the third one is this whole transition risk and looking at new areas of underwriting. Um, so then itself, you've got a pretty big market there just purely within insurance. But are you now also start to, to sort of get questions from the, your clients where they, and you kind of hinted at this, but where they're being asked by totally different sort of groups of people to report on on the risk? And is, is this going to be, does it tell me I'm going to borrow from you, the kind of loose brick getting into investing and, and banking and the capital markets for maybe using some of the historic approaches, or it's not as much historic, but the well-tried approaches for looking at extreme events and actually starting to, those starting to enter themselves into that new area of, of uh, sort of finance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's coming up a lot. Um, and often um, what we hear when we talk to our customers is that 
when they look at their insurance process, they see a lot of detailed modeling. Now, it still feels too black box to them, but they understand that there are these models, there's data that matters. It's important to collect this information. And so there's a very analytical data-driven process, warts and all, as we've been discussing with the data, but it's a well under it's a reasonably well understood process. Then they look to the other side to these resiliency imperatives, and they scratch their heads and they say, you know, they they feel very unclear on how you measure. Um, what are the metrics? Um, why are these metrics different than the insurance metrics? You know, and can we have a unified framework for thinking about this? And they're like, we want a unified framework. You know, we, we don't want one framework, which is about reporting to a regulator, another framework, which is reporting to your investors, another regular framework for reporting to your insurers. These things all exist on a continuum, and it's about the underlying risk and resiliency of the property. And we should be able to make data-driven decisions along that continuum in a completely consistent fashion. So the choice we make on whether to form and structure a captive or buy an extra layer of insurance is the same process we should be going through to decide, do we actually mitigate the asset to improve its resiliency for reporting to a key stakeholder? And that's an operational consideration. Or what do we want to factor into our due diligence when we bought the building in the first place? These should all be a continuum of decisions driven by common data and common frameworks. And right now, there's a real balkanization and I'm hearing more and more of, of, of our customers saying, hey, you know, can you help us think this through? Because you clearly are helping us think through our data. You are thinking through the data through the lens of risk and risk management. So stay tuned on that one, Matthew. And I want to come back to another point that you made and you've touched on it a little bit, but the challenge of change in a, mm-hmm. an industry, particularly one where there's no external forces, or maybe there are external forces to drive this. And actually... Another former colleague of ours from RMS, Steve Pretry, and I were talking about this uh, a few weeks ago about you know, Jim Collins has this great quote that you need to create technology that's, and you think, I think you can translate it to most businesses. It's actually 10 times better than what people are using to get them to shift. So, I mean, there are, there are some external factors in here, but you've got investors who've put a lot of money to the company. They generally look for quite speedy returns. How do you accelerate that change? If you just let it progress its natural momentum, I suspect it's not going to be fast enough. So just interested what techniques you found or other external factors that are driving driving change. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll embrace the underlying challenge that you've outlined, which is you know, changing uh, prevailing practice in traditional complex industries is very hard. Um, you know, these, these, you know, sometimes people come to these things naively and think, Oh, the existing practice doesn't make any sense. There's a better way. I've got an algorithm, a hoodie, a pair of cool sneakers, you know, presto, it's going to change. You know, if it was easy to change, it would have changed a long time ago. And part of it is deeply respecting the status quo ex ante and understanding why is that part of things the way they are. It's not because people are lazy or dumb or not innovative. Often these processes, these practices have built up over years and sometimes generations for very good and logical reasons. And if you don't understand that, you can't change the system. Um, you have to embrace, embrace it, understand it, meet it where it is, and then move it systematically. So I think that has been a big part of the archipelago mindset, which has been appealing to customers. Because when we show up, we 
understand and we convey a deep appreciation and empathy for the current pain points. We understand why they've things have developed the way they are. We're not naive in our understanding of, of how things should be better. So we meet them where they are and we have a systematic approach to changing this in a, in a, in a logical way. Um, it, it, one of the, the key drivers of, of how to change systems is to stimulate these network effects uh, that, that we were describing. And that, that has been a key part of our strategy, which is, yes, let's start with changing behavior in what sometimes some investors call single player mode. But you go to these large top tier owners, like a company like Prologis, I mentioned, or a large one of the largest tech companies um, is on our platform as well, or one of the largest owners of hospital, except these, these top tier, what we call eagles. These are not only very powerful brands, they're large buyers of commercial property insurance, are well-respected companies. They have important trading relationships in the market and you get them on board. When you get them on board in single player mode, they invite in their broker partners who get to see the benefits. Those broker partners invite in the underwriters who get to see the benefits. And you've got to cultivate those feedback loops to create uh, the dopamine loops that start to change people's perception of what's possible. And once you start to change perception of what's possible, people start to think, well, this could actually change. And they start to believe if they see it's possible and they see it changing, they can envision, well, this could really change. And if they think it can really change, they start to lean in and be contribute to that change because they can believe it can change. So you have to first demonstrate you can start the flywheel. Then you need to engage people. Oh, I believe this can actually change. And then I'm going to contribute to that change. And it's a journey. It's, it's, much, it's, it's a hero's journey. And the hero is not archipelago. The hero is the underwriter. The hero is the risk manager. The hero is the broker. Engage people emotionally that there's a journey that they can take to contribute and be part of the change. And that's, and you know, a lot of the, 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 the art of change management and changing these systems is, yes, there's an analytical aspect which you have to create massive ROI. Right? Sometimes people go like 10x ROI to get, you know, to get something to actually from one state to another. But it's also engaging the people to be, see themselves as part of this journey and get them excited and emotionally engaged that this is a better way and I want to be part of it. So I'm going to advocate, you know, one risk manager advocating to another in a forum, which has happened a lot for us. A risk manager advocating to their broker who then advocates to one of their other customers. The broker advocating to the underwriter who then advocates to their other broker who advocates back to their customer that this is a better way. It's practical. It works. It's possible. So a lot of it is you have to create People, you have to you have to get people engaged. It's possible you can you can do it, and then they can actually contribute to it as opposed to watching it. They can actually help accelerate, and that's the the change uh, journey that we're going through across this three part ecosystem with these mutually reinforcing feedback loops. Eagles in single player mode. If uh, if I don't remember anything else in this podcast, and of course I will. Uh, it's going to be Eagles in single player. But I also noticed you managed to slip another Jim Collins quote in there. Well done. You get an extra point for that with your reference to the flywheel from uh, from good to great. So for those that have made it this far, you can, can you now reveal uh, or have much detail as you want to? When we're talking again in a year's time, what are we going to be talking about that you will be doing in the next 12 months? So much of it is is what we've just alluded to, which is this tipping point of expectation where because of the network effects over the next year, 
we're going to go from a state where an underwriting team getting an archipelago-enabled submission is going to shift from, that's great, I'm excited, to when they don't get one, they're going to be, what is going on here? Will you please not send me another spreadsheet? When that sentiment tips from, I'm surprised and delighted, which is great, I love that, right? That's That helps validate that we're doing something right, to the expectations, I want to now see most, if not all, the submissions, because it's possible I've seen enough. Now my expectation is tipped from I'm surprised and delighted to I expect it. And there's and there might be consequences if I don't get it this way. Uh, so that's kind of one important shift. Another is that we're gonna we're gonna be able to be shift the conversation from talking about the process of sourcing, connecting, validating, and then sharing high quality data sets, both exposure and loss, to what's the insight that's coming from the aggregations of that data. That's a whole nother layer of what we're setting out to do um, very openly, because it's not just that the data is inefficient, it's not as accurate as it should be, and that leads to suboptimal outcomes for everybody. It's that the whole system is very opaque. Um, and so when you start to get trillions of dollars of data and millions of properties, you start to see patterns in the data. Uh, that sheds more light, that creates opportunities to make the system more effective. Yes, definitely humans, judgment, experience are always going to matter, but there are opportunities for more machine-driven processes across this, this whole value chain that will lead to better outcomes for everybody. Um, and the aggregations of the data will start to show some of the patterns that suggest the way forward on that front as well. And that will happen within the next year. Well, thank you for your support for Instec as well and, and look forward to seeing what you're doing. And yeah, now we're allowed to travel again. Um, we either will come out to California or we might see you in London. I'm sure you'll be over here before too long. And be wonderful uh, that, to see you um, in person, Matthew. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Well, that was a lot to catch up on, so I'm not going to hold you up for much longer. Everything you want to know about us is at www.instec.co and please don't forget to tell us what you think. Message me on LinkedIn or comment on this episode or better still, tell your friends. That's it. We're done.